Let's begin our study with the word of prayer. Lord, we're grateful to you tonight that you are a faithful God, that you keep your promises. We're grateful that we can count on you, that you are a rock and a refuge. We do hide in you. We hide in your Son, Jesus Christ. We do pray that you would, by your mercy, cover us with his blood, that you would not see our sin, that it would be taken away, borne away forever, and that there would be no more remembrance of those things that we have done that bring offense to you and transgress your holy law. We do ask you, Father, that you would make us all the more grateful tonight for the stability of your word that you've given to us that we can cling to and rely upon. We ask that as we study it tonight, you'd give us a detailed understanding of it, that we would live better lives because of this, and we'd understand in greater depth the love that you have for us and, and the history of redemption, the way things have come about to create the Christian church and, and the saving mercy that is now ours. We thank you, Father, for the beauty of the scriptures and pray that they might truly affect us as we study them tonight. We know that this word is powerful, that it will have an effect for good or for ill upon us, depending upon our response to it. And so we ask that by your spirit, that you would make us respond faithfully to your holy word. And we pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Tonight we launch into a new chapter in Hebrews, which is always significant for us since we've been moving through so methodically and in detail. Hebrews, the ninth chapter. And I don't expect I'm going to get real far, but I'd like to read the first ten verses anyway and hope that we can make that much progress tonight. Hebrews 9, beginning at verse 1. Now even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service, and its sanctuary, a sanctuary of this world. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the first, wherein were the candle stand and the table and the showbread, which is called the holy place. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense, and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was a golden pot holding the manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant, and above it cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat, of which things we cannot now speak in detail. Now these things having been thus prepared, the priests go in continually into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the services. But into the second, the high priest alone, once in the year, not without blood, which he offers for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Spirit thus signifying that the way into the holy place had not yet been made manifest while the first tabernacle is yet standing, which is a figure for the time present, according to which are offered both gifts and sacrifices that cannot, as touching the conscience, make the worshiper perfect, being only with meats and drinks and divers baptisms, carnal ordinances imposed until a time of reformation. And thus far, God's word. Up to Hebrews, the ninth chapter, the author has done a lot of work with Old Testament ritual personnel, Melchizedek, for instance, and has talked about the anticipation of the coming age, the age of the new covenant that we are now enjoying and the redemption that Jesus brings in. He has already demonstrated his ability to do biblical theology. There's no doubt in anybody's mind that this, this man, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has a real insight, a theological insight, to the meaning of the Old Covenant. And as I pointed out, he could take even one word in the Old Covenant, you know, order, after the order of Melchizedek. And you know there's no order, there's only one person called Melchizedek. And he makes an argument out of that one word, the order of Melchizedek in Psalm 110. So he really knows how to do his exegesis. He knows how to make application theologically. But now he comes and looks in detail at the tabernacle. And he's going to, he's going to draw some theological conclusions from the very layout of the tabernacle and the ordinances of service that were performed there. So verse 1 he says, now even the first had ordinances of divine service and its sanctuary, a sanctuary of this world. 
even the first. The first what? It may not be as obvious as um, it might appear because if you look back to the last verse of chapter 8, the chapter divisions are arbitrary. They are not inspired. They are not in the original. The verse just preceding has said, in that he saith a new, he hath made the first old. Well, in that verse, what does first refer to? Well, covenant, that's right. In that he speaks of a new covenant, he has made the first covenant old. And so now we come just one more clause away, and he says, now even the first. And so you would naturally read covenant. However, if you go on, you must see that in verse 2, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, it should be verse 2. He says, for there was a tabernacle prepared the first. There was a tent prepared the first. And that language, especially in its appositional position, might suggest that he is introducing in verse 9 the idea of a first tabernacle. Now, even the first tabernacle had ordinances of divine service and its sanctuary, a holy place within it, and so forth. But those of you who have uh, done some literary study can tell me why the second interpretation isn't possible. Unless, of course, the author isn't thinking very clearly, but we don't uh, countenance that presupposition. Why must the second interpretation be discounted? What is the contrast intended in verse 1? Now, even the first had ordinances of divine service. He's talking about some whole system, some operating system. But in verse 2, notice he says, For there was a tabernacle prepared the first, wherein were the candlestand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the holy place. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called. And so when he says first tabernacle in verse 2, he means what? Part of the whole system. And so, the second interpretation would have a part being contrasted with the whole, rather than having the whole Old Covenant divine service contrasted with the whole New Covenant divine service. So, verse 1 should be properly read, and you probably have it italicized in your Bibles, most translations will. Now, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service in its sanctuary, a sanctuary of this world. What does it mean, a sanctuary of this world? Let me give you some possibilities from the medieval interpreters on. A sanctuary of this cosmetos, that is, a sanctuary open to all creation. Some have said that the Old Covenant had its sanctuary open to the whole creation. Why? Because if you look at the layout of the temple, you have the holy place, well, you have the holy of holies into which only the high priest can go. You have the holy place where only the Levitical line that is serving the temple may go. Then you have the outer court and what? The court of the Gentiles. And so some have thought he's referring here to the fact that there was an openness to the world in the Old Testament tabernacle, a cosmic tabernacle, as it were. The problem is that he's not talking about the temple, though. He conspicuously uses the word tabernacle. And the tabernacle did not have a place for the Gentiles. So, I think that's not likely. Others, uh, you'll, you'll like this, especially if you're inclined toward James Jordan's interpretation of the Bible. And if you are, speak to me later. We'll do some counseling. <laughs> some have said that this is a cosmic tabernacle because it's symbolic of the whole universe. That the tabernacle is something of a pattern symbolic pattern for the whole universe. Okay, so that's been proposed. I'm not doing a good job of trying to make you bite on this. I guess I'm (laughs) telegraphing pretty clearly where I'm coming from. Now, when it says a tabernacle of this world, it means, I think, what you would understand just in first reading. It's of this world. It's an earthly tabernacle. And I think that's pretty well supported if you look at what the author's been saying. Chapter 8, verse 1 Now in the things which we are saying, the chief point is this, we have such a high priest who sat down on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Contrast, he now has served in the heavens. Verse 4, 
Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, seeing there are those who offer gifts according to the law. Verse 5, who serve that which is a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, even as Moses warned. So you have this contrast developed already between earthly tabernacle, heavenly tabernacle. And he continues this in verse 9. Look at verse 9, 11. But Christ, having come a high priest of the good things to come, through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with his hands, that is to say, not of this creation. And then verses 23 and 24 of chapter 9. It was necessary, therefore, that the copies of the things in the heavens should be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ entered not into a holy place made with hands, like in pattern to the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear before the face of God for us. So we can be pretty confident, I think, in interpreting verse 1, although I've taken time because there's so much controversy in the commentaries. Now even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and its sanctuary of this world had an earthly sanctuary. And then in verse 2, he tells us about the tabernacle, how it was divided into two chambers. And in verse 2, he describes the first of those two chambers, the holy place. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the first, wherein there were the candle stand and the table of the showbread, which is called the holy place. How many of you have seen a diagram of the Old Testament tabernacle or temple? That'll, that'll work, too. Maybe half of you. Okay. Uh, it, it is interesting to see how it's laid out, uh, even the uh, numerical proportions between um, the various dimensions are of interest. But um, if you can imagine a rectangular tent and then outside the rectangle, before you actually get to the entrance to it, you have um, a laver, a round laver for washing, and then in front of the laver, a few steps away, you have a brazen altar, a brass altar. Okay, so now the sacrifices were made at the altar, the cleansing took place at the laver, and all of that had to be performed before you even entered the holy place. Okay, and that in itself is significant. No one had the right to enter the temple in his own strength, in his own holiness, by any kind of inherent right. He could only enter that if he first had gone through the sacrificial ritual and the cleansing ritual. Now, as you come into this rectangular area, there are two sections, and they're divided evenly, one-third and two-thirds. And the two-thirds section, the larger section, the outer chamber, or first tent as it's called here, is 10 by 20 cubits. So you not only have a two-to-one ratio in the two compartments, you have a two-to-one ratio in terms of uh, the length and breadth of this. Now, what's a cubit? 18 inches. What's that? 18 inches, the distance from the end of the middle yeah, if we wanted to have a lot of fun, we could talk about Egyptian cubits and old Hebrew cubits and so forth. They had the cubit with the adding of the digits and all that, but David's right. Roughly 18 inches. Royal cubit was about 20 inches plus, but 18 will do the job. Okay. You remember the funny Bill Cosby routine? What's you know, a where yeah, what's a God calls on Noah to, to build the ark and so forth. Noah's convinced he has to do it. And God says, I want you to make it so many cubits. And yes. Cosby responds for Noah, what's a cubit? You know, because none of us know what a cubit it is. The assumption is Noah didn't either. No one knew what a cubit was. And so did the people who made the tabernacle. Okay, so if it's 10 by 20 cubits, we're looking at what? 15 by 30 feet, roughly. Okay, now in this holy place, if you read the Levitical... Um, uh, diagrams of the Old Testament, the uh, instructions of the Old Testament, you will see there are three things to be found. By the way, the, the, the tabernacle had to be placed, if you were looking at a picture of it, it would look like it were, it, it, it's laid out rectangular the long way going east-west. Okay, so that was important. It had to be situated on the earth just right too. So you have a north and a south and east and a west. And the north side of it and the south side contained a lampstand on the north 
and on the south, a table. Let's talk about that for a minute. First, the lampstand. It was a golden lampstand, had seven branches. Well, not really seven branches, six branches with the center section. Seven places for candles altogether. What do the Jews call that? The menorah, that's right. And uh, this was placed, did I say in the north? Yes. I'm sorry, let me correct myself, on the south. And so as you're looking at your diagram, you have the candle stand down here, representing the light of the world, I believe, but nevertheless, the candle stand. And then in the northern part of this chamber, you have a table that is called in Hebrew the table of the presence, the table of the face, literally, the presentation table for bread. And what was laid on the table of the face? <clears throat> yeah, as Tyndale puts it in Old English, the showbread. But you see, that's an English equivalent. It means the bread of the face, the bread of the face presentation, the way we approach God. And so the approach of Israel to God is symbolized on the table because there are 12 <coughs> loaves laid out in two rows of six. Okay? And then also in the holy place, right before the curtain that divides the holy place from the holy of holies is an altar of incense. Anyone know what the altar of incense symbolized? The incense itself was a prayer. I don't think people over there on that side of the room can hear you. I'm trying not to talk loud. <laughs> Especially if I was wrong. What's the answer? <laughs> I said prayers. That's right. We know that if you turn to um, Revelation, the 8th chapter, verses 3 and 4, where the symbolism of the Old Testament tabernacle is picked up, and we read that another angel came and stood over the altar having a golden censer. And there was given unto him much incense that he should add it unto the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. And so the, the smoke of the incense at the golden altar going up before the throne of God was symbolic of the prayers of the saints going before God. In Revelation, we read that the uh, smoke goes up before the throne of God. Why do you figure that symbolism is used? The smoke of the incense, the incense smoke going up before the throne of God. The altar of incense was found in the holy place. But right in front of what? The holy of holies. The holy of holies. And what was in the holy of holies? The throne of God, the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant. So. I'll tell you, there's real value in doing your biblical study. You get some of these details. You read the book of Revelation, that makes more sense. You read the book of Hebrews, it ties together nicely. It's uh, God sees the incense, you see, as like the prayers of his people coming before him. Okay, I've told you what's in the holy place. Read verse 2 and tell me what's wrong with verse 2 now. What's defective about verse 2? provocative language, right? No altar of incense is mentioned. we got an even bigger problem. It's missing in verse 2, but it shows up elsewhere. Where does it show up? Someone? Verse 4, and where is it in verse 4? In the Holy of Holies. What are we going to do with that? Well, when we come to verse 4, we'll find out. Verse 3 says, and after the second veil. What's the first veil? Where's the first veil mentioned? What? First entrance. It is the first entrance. Is it mentioned? No. So read with some discernment. He says second veil, but he doesn't tell you what the first is. He takes it for granted. You know the layout. You have to enter through one veil to get to the holy place. And now the second veil leads to the holy of holies. And after the second veil the tent which is called the Holy of Holies. What does Holy of Holies mean? What does King of Kings mean? What does Song of Songs mean? This is Hebrew idiom. Someone... 
It's superlative, exactly. What's superlative mean, David? <laughs> That's right. So the Song of Songs is the best song. The King of Kings is the highest king. The Holy of Holies is the holiest place. So you have a holy place and then the holiest place. Now maybe the mathematical proportions are beginning to make sense. You see the intensification? You have the twice as large and now it's going to be compressed even more into half of that and what you have is the holiest place of all. I mean the intensity of God's presence is found there in the Holy of Holies. This second curtain was made of linen, fine twined linen. What colors? Where are our artists? David, I guess we'll call on you again. This should be important to people who pay attention to artistic detail. I don't have the verse before. Okay, what color? Purple, blue. No, not gold. And red. Blue, purple, and scarlet, technically. Okay, royal colors. And what did the thread, the colored thread, picture? No, not pomegranates. The pomegranates are in the tabernacle. All oh, this, this symbolism is so important. What is the high priest went into the very presence of God and he went through that veil. What did he see on either side as he went through? Cherubim. Cherubim, exactly. Why cherubim? I can't hear you. Well, the cherubim are on the mercy seat. We're going to talk about that in a minute, but that's not the reason. Why is the presence of God guarded by cherubim? Well, his throne is there and it is being guarded. What's that? The wings cover the food. No, you're talking about the cherubim, the golden cherubim that are actually inside. Why on the very veil, the cherubim? Keep people out. <laughs> yeah, the veil's supposed to keep people out. But what's being symbolized here? I've preached on this and now I feel terrible. <laughs> Apparently it didn't mean as much to you as it meant to me. Okay. Adam and Eve walked and talked with garden in the garden with God and when he cast them out of the garden what did he do he put a flaming cherubim at the entrance so they could not come back God said you may not come into my presence anymore and that was symbolized by the cherubim that guard his holy presence and so as the high priest comes I mean doesn't that really kind of light up the Old Testament for you you can't come here because the cherubim have kept you from the tree of life you can't come into the presence of God all right holy of holies then. Um, verse 4 tells us what was in the holy of holies having a golden altar of incense which isn't accurate and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold wherein was a golden pot holding the manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant in verse 5, above it cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, of which things we cannot now speak in detail. <laughs> Probably more detail than you were prepared for, but he says, well, I can go on and on here, but not now. Okay, why is the altar of incense spoken of as being in the holy of holies rather than in the holy place? Here's some possibilities for you. One, Martin Luther, who always tended towards some rather blunt interpretations, said, well, there must have been three altars then. Okay, the altar of sacrifice, the golden altar of incense before he went in, and this is talking about a third one. But <laughs> even Luther couldn't convince himself of that. He changed his interpretation later. So I don't think we can take that seriously. Secondly, some have said, and of course this is what you're probably worrying about, there are those who say, obviously the author was a non-Palestinian Jew. He didn't understand the temple set up, and he's just made a real mistake, an embarrassing mistake. And so the Bible is not inerrant after all. Whoa. Quite a few people say that. Only one problem with it. I mean, even if you want to run with skeptics for a minute, the problem is you didn't have to be a Palestinian Jew to understand these points. You read Philo, you read others who were Jews outside of Palestine. They understood this very well. This was, I mean, we really can't appreciate as Protestants, and especially as uneducated Protestants, you cannot appreciate how the Jews memorized this sort of thing. It was crucial to them. 
This was not the sort of mistake somebody unfamiliar would make with. This is the kind of mistake only an idiot would make. Literally. No Jew could make that big a mistake. I got another problem. Jewish literature of the period says the same thing. Identifies the altar of incense with the Holy of Holies. Now some, and if you have King James versions with you tonight, you still have this history of trying to resolve the problem. Some say the word doesn't refer to the altar, but to a golden censer. The thought being, when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, he must have had a golden censer, and that's what this is referring to. And that it was left in there in the year intervening between the Day of Atonement. Of course, any such golden... How many of you do have that in your translation? A censer instead of an altar? Yeah. Look at the New King James. They've changed it back to an altar. Is that right? Yeah. Well, good They've for got them. An altar of incense. Yeah, it's not the way to handle the problem. There is some linguistic evidence that would allow for that, but the problem is that any such golden censer would have been of such a minor significance to mention it and omit the altar of incense, which was a major part of the temple ritual, wouldn't have made any sense at all. And so we're back to the problem, then, friends. What do we do with this? Didn't the priest bring the altar with him in there when he offered it the church? No, I don't think that's the answer, but you're close to it. He didn't literally take it in, but there was an association of the incense altar with the holiest place because of the theological connection between the prayers of the saints and the priest going into the Holy of Holies to sprinkle the, the blood on the mercy seat so that the prayers would be heard. That is to say, the geography was such that it's right at the transition from one chamber to another, and it's um, theologically thought of as, as being as important to the Holy of Holies as it is to the Holy Place. Because what did I tell you earlier? When the, when the incense goes up, it goes up before what? The throne of God. And so it's because of that transitional, I mean, just to speak in geography, it's in a transitional position, but theologically it's transitional too. So that altar of incense is, in Jewish thought, associated with both the chambers, and there's nothing wrong with that. So instead of you know, going to artificial interpretations like Luther's or trying to retranslate the word, I think we need to understand that the Jewish mind wouldn't have thought of this as a mistake. The Jewish mind would have seen the theological connection between the two, and the altar of incense having a place in both of them. When the high priest on the Day of Atonement offered sacrifice, you have to remember, he went in and the golden uh, altar of incense was sprinkled with blood and then he would go in. So there was this, from one altar to the next altar to the, to the very throne of God, to the Ark of the Covenant, there was, a, as one commentator puts it, the straight line of propitiation. If you, have, if you had this chart in front of you that I've been kind of sketching out, you have the altar of sacrifice, then the next thing on the straight line, apart from the labor, which is a little off-center, the next thing is the altar of incense, and the very next thing is the throne of God. And so those things are intended to run together. Okay, what is the Ark of the Covenant? It was particularly sacred, most important object in the tabernacle. What kind of wood was it made out of, anyone? Acacia wood, that's right. How big was it? What's a cubit? Two and a half cubits by one and a half cubits by one and a half cubits. So what, what's that? 45 by... I didn't get all the other numbers in my head when I was calculating. 45 one way. <laughs> Whatever it was, it was a chest covered inside and out. That is the inside of the chest and the outside of the chest were covered with gold. It had golden rings at the corners. Why? For carrying. Why couldn't you just go pick it up? <laughs> Whoa. You don't touch the very presence of God. And nor does God need your help. What story reminds us of that? That's right. They were transporting the ark and they hit a pothole or one of the oxen um, stumbled, whatever it was, and it started to, you know, and fellow reaches up and touches it to stabilize it and he's struck dead you don't touch the ark that's why it has the the rings there so you can carry it and now the real question I'd, I, I'd love to see how you do with this what happened to the ark well, Indiana. <laughs> I knew it Indiana Jones 
government state somewhere, right? It's right. in the uh, government. Uh, it's lost somewhere in D.C. in some yeah. shed. Well, according to the story, where was it before the U.S. government goofed it up? In Egypt somewhere, right? Does anyone really know what happened to the ark? Well, it disappeared from the scene with the destruction of Solomon's temple in the year 587 B.C. So well over half a millennium, 500 years before Christ, the ark disappeared. What then happened when the temple was rebuilt after the exile? What was... Did they make a new ark then? Does anyone know the history here? No. This is amazing. The Ichabod... Remember the story of Ichabod? The glory has departed. That's what Ichabod means in Hebrew. But the glory departed from Israel and it did not return. When the temple was rebuilt... There was no Ark of the Covenant in the holy place. Only a slab of stone upon was written the foundation. The stone of foundation. Where the Ark would have been. The Jews have not had the Ark of the Covenant since the exile. And it never was found, never returned. But there are different Jewish legends about what happened to the Ark. Would you like to hear some stories? We don't like this 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 is kind of simplistic One legend says Angels came and took it to heaven I like that one Classic Deus Ex Machina, right? (laughs) The angels took it away Secondly, Jeremiah Hid the ark with the altar Of incense, interestingly, in a cave Some Jews believe Jeremiah the prophet hid it And um, so I guess if we were to do our research, we might uh, unearth it someday. Thirdly, the Samaritan tradition was that it was buried next to the grave of Moses on Mount Gerizim, awaiting the advent of the Messiah that was spoken of in Deuteronomy 18, the one greater, the greater prophet than Moses. So the ark will still turn up when the Messiah shows up, they thought. What's the Christian view of the location of the Ark of the Covenant? There's a New Testament answer. What's the Christian view, David? The angel took it to heaven? (laughs) The Christian view is that whatever happened to the ark is totally irrelevant. I think we can see that if you turn to... um, lost my place in my notes. Turn to Revelation 11.19. John says, And there was opened the temple of God that is in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his covenant. And there followed lightnings, voices, thunders, and an earthquake and great hail. Do you see the significance? No, 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 no. no. What, What we're saying here is the earthly ark of the covenant makes no difference. See, John has this momentous, dramatic vision of the ark that is in heaven. That's what counts. And of course, the author of Hebrews is pursuing the same theological thought, isn't he? Isn't he trying to show us that the earthly tabernacle is not important? The earthly ritual is not important? Because Jesus ministers where? Before the very presence of God, the true tabernacle in heaven. So the ark of the covenant is meaningless to us. Only Christians could make the Indiana Jones story because only they could make light of it. So there really is makes no, no difference. There's no more ark. There is no more ark. So what John saw was not an ark of the covenant. It was not an earthly one. It says conspicuously in heaven. It says conspicuously God's temple in heaven. That's right. And what is the temple of God in heaven? What does the temple refer to? The very presence of God, right? Okay. Now what was in the chest, the ark of the covenant, according to Hebrews 9? <clears throat> There's a story connected. Okay, manna, is that what was there, Terry? That's right, the golden pot holding the manna. What else? Aaron's rod. Aaron's rod. What happened to Aaron's rod? And then, what else? Tables of the covenant. What are the tables of the covenant? The Ten Commandments, right. Is the author speaking of the Levitical tabernacle in Jerusalem 
You don't have to put your thinking caps on to answer that, is he? You figure the manna from hundreds of years earlier was still in a pot in the tabernacle there? No. Well, you already know the ark's not even there. I told you that. <laughs> but even if it were, Aaron's rod and the manna disintegrated years previous to this. Okay? He's referring to the wilderness tabernacle. A tent. He's not speaking of temple. He doesn't use the word for temple. Conspicuously uses the word for tent or tabernacle. Okay, so in that old tabernacle, what was put in the Ark of the Covenant? First of all, the golden pot holding the manna. Someone tell me the story. Why was there manna put in a golden pot? That's right. It was a, a reminder of God's faithfulness in the wilderness. Who was not faithful? <laughs> Children, where did the manna come from? From their, yeah, it came from heaven, but it was. What brought it about was their complaining and murmuring. And when God provided, He said, "You take some of this and you put it in a." It didn't actually. The Old Testament doesn't say it's golden. This comes from Septuagint tradition, which shows us again some of the background of the author here. He obviously is familiar with the Septuagint, but golden pot holding the manna. Vicky, what's so funny about that? David, <laughs> now it's your turn. I do this with I do this with my students at school too. I, I'd like to know what's so funny. <laughs> Here we have the frosted flakes interpretation of manna. Okay. Okay, and Aaron's rod that budded. Tell me the story of Aaron's rod that budded. Yeah, don't you remember how the Israelites complained? They said, why is he the leader? <laughs> you know, they had this anarchistic view that we should all be on the same level. We don't have any special leaders among God's people. That's what they said. And so Moses said, all right, you bring your rods. Aaron will bring his rod. And they left him overnight and came back, and what happened? Aaron's head butted. Why is that significant? Someone explain that to us city folks. What's a rod? I'm telling you, it was good. It's a piece of wood. It's a dead piece of wood. That's right, a dead piece of wood. Think of the shovel handle in your garage. <laughs> That's a rod. Now, do you figure you put the shovel handle on the floor of the garage, you come back the next morning and it's blossoming? No, but if you planted it, it would. In California, it would. <laughs> That's right. Well, Pat's very optimistic in his about the movies. That's right. Give it enough time, it may. Rods don't blossom. So here's this miraculous rod that blossomed. It too is in the. Um, Ark of the Covenant. Only problem is that in the Old Testament, neither one were put in the Ark of the Covenant. They were placed literally before the Ark of the Covenant, in front of it. Well, why does it say that it was in the Ark of the Covenant? Why was it put in the chest? It's not hard to figure out. For convenience? What, what, what was with this tabernacle? What, what happened to it? They got carted around all over the place. That's right, through the wilderness wanderings and even after that. And so when they moved it, they had to put the miraculous rod and the miraculous manna somewhere. So they would put it in the Ark of the Covenant and then carry it around. And for convenience, they just left it there. And that is true to Jewish tradition. And so the author here is referring to an Old Testament incident. We see that. And yet, we also see how he understands it in the modern light of Jewish uh, practice and thought. Uh, Paula? Yeah, I have kind of a practical question and maybe it's really off the wall, but did somebody lift the lid on this chest? <laughs> I was thinking, did they pry it out and it? Yeah, they had to have something so they wouldn't have to touch the ark itself. That's right. That's right. In that sense, as I remember the movie, um, yeah, it was kind of devastating. It was real, real heavy. Well, let's talk about that for a moment. It's not where I am in my notes. Why was the lid so heavy? Pure gold. Pure, pure gold. That's right. And it's 
you know, yay big and so forth. And so when they pried that thing up in the movie, it was very heavy, you know, to get off. Okay, verse 5, to continue here in a more serious note. And above it, the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, of which things we cannot now speak in detail. The cherubim of glory. Two golden cherubim were fashioned, and they faced each other on the sides of the Ark of the Covenant. And their wings came up and overshadowed it. Okay, so it was rather, you know, nicely made, artistically crafted. But what's in the middle? Here you have the angels facing each other. We have this thing like window dressing. The mercy seat's here. Doug, can you help us? What was what was hovering above the mercy seat? The Shekinah glory of God. All right. I think it was a pretty frightening experience for the high priest to go into the holy place. Not only all the ritual that led up to it, to let him know. By the way, I think I've told you this before, but um, it was Jewish tradition that when the high priest went in on the Day of Atonement, he had a rope tied to his ankle that, tra that, that trailed out through it. Why is that? Because he was so afraid that he'd be struck dead, and they'd never know how to get the body out because no one else could go in. So they required him to have a rope on his ankle so they could pull the corpse out if he was struck dead before the presence of... So, I mean, there was a lot of awesome, fearsome uh, drama about this as he went in. And the Shekinah glory was there. Was his face covered to go in there? No, but uh, that does remind us of the story of Moses, who, mm -hmm. when he receives the tables mm -hmm. of stone, comes down and his face shines with the glory of God to such a degree that people can't stand to look at him. Well, the Shekinah glory was only there at that one particular time of the year, right? Because what would happen when he went to strike the temple to take it down and cart it off? Well, the, the Shekinah glory was kind of like the um, cloud uh, the pillar of cloud and the fire that would lead them through the tabernacle uh, through the wilderness and then it would settle on the tabernacle that would become the Shekinah glory I believe in the holy place when it was stationary but there had to be a time when they erected everything it's kind of a that's you know, an interesting like question was the Shekinah glory visible when the high priest wasn't there it's kind yeah. of like when a tree falls in the forest <laughs> to make a sound I mean how would you practically or pragmatically answer that question nobody would know because only the high priest could go no. in one day a year okay the cherubim of glory are the cherubim are the chair there are the cherubim of the Shekinah glory of God the presence of God which was above the mercy seat okay now let's talk about the mercy seat we've already said it was a slab of pure gold exactly fitted to the top of the ark the Greek word that is used for mercy seat here, Elastrian, is used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, for a Hebrew word that means covering. So here we have the covering seat. Okay, it covers the ark, but it's more than that. Symbolically, this seat was interposed between the tables of the law, which were in the ark, and the glorious presence of God, which was above the mercy seat, the seat of covering. The Greek word can be translated place of propitiation. I really like that. I wish our translators would do that. Of course, they won't, because they won't even take the word for propitiation in Greek and translate it into English as propitiation. I'm going to call on Doug to explain why the word propitiation isn't found in the New Testament in modern English translations. What their reason is? What their reason is. They say because we're not used to that word in common parlance. That's right. Even the evangelical church has compromised on that point. You will not find modern translations using propitiation. And they won't because it's too big a word. Isn't that terrible? J. Gresham Machen, back in the 1930s, said, if people don't understand the word, it's our job to teach them. Rather than to take away something of such value, the concept of propitiation is hard to get in any other English phrase or word. What does propitiation mean? What does it mean to propitiate someone? More than satisfy. To appease wrath, exactly. 
To propitiate means to send the wrath away, to appease that person, and to satisfy justice, of course, is connected with that. Do the two angels represent the righteousness and justice of God looking down the I don't believe so, but I'm going to talk about that line of interpretation in just a minute, if I don't run out of time here. Uh, place of propitiation, mercy seat, means that when the blood was brought in by the high priest and sprinkled, the wrath of God was taken away. And you need to think of the, um, the procedure of the Day of Atonement. And again, we are students of the Scripture, and so we don't appreciate this, but there's a beautiful symbolism. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest, and only the high priest could do this, would start by going to the brazen altar outside the tabernacle and offering what for sacrifice? Biggest sacrifice of all in Israel. A bull. That's right. I know you're city folk. Have you ever been around a stockyard? You know what a bull? I mean, that is a big sacrifice. If someone were to give you for Christmas a bull or a steer and say, have this cut up and put in your freezer, you'd fill a freezer or two. That's a lot of meat. And remember, the sacrifices were meat, either to be consumed entirely, barbecue fashion, that's what it was, big barbecue or to be eaten by the priest. Now, in this case, it was a, a sin offering, so it wasn't to be eaten. But that is a big offering. The bull had to be offered. For whose sins? For the high priest. And then he takes the blood from that sacrifice, he goes to the altar of incense, and then into the holy place, and he sprinkles the blood for his own sins, so that he can represent the people. Then he goes back out, and he goes to the altar again, and they have two goats ready. And he takes one of the goats, and he sacrifices the goat for what? For the sins of the people. Right. And then he goes through the blood ritual again upon the mercy seat. And comes back out, and lays his hands at the end of the ritual upon the head of the second goat. And confesses all the sins of the people. Well, I'll tell you, if someone had to hold that goat still, because that took a while. He confesses all, in fact, the Hebrew... It's almost hard to translate because it uses every word conceivable for this. The iniquities and the transgressions and all the sins of the people as he's holding on to the goat. And then what do they do with this goat? They lead it out into the wilderness. Beautiful picture of the sins are now taken into the wilderness, never to return. God no longer sees them. The mercy seat, covered with blood, God no longer sees our sin. Our sins confessed on the head of the goat, taken to the wilderness. God no longer holds that against us. And only one day a year did the Hebrews enjoy that. And if they understood it, it was a very dramatic ritual. Just think of having to watch an entire bull consumed on the altar for the priest of the, for the high priest's sin. And then all this other ritual. But you see, we've got to have a sense of the drama and the theological depth of that because that's what we enjoy every day as Christians. Every day we understand that our sins are atoned. And the goat goes out to the wilderness symbolically. Because every day, Jesus as our high priest is taking care of that matter. Romans 3.25 Also using the word for propitiation. I'll read verse 24. We are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation, literally a propitiatory, a mercy seat. Does it have mercy seat? Good. Well, now what do you have? New American Standard? Okay. Anything after that? How about NIV? They're the ones that really let me down. Says one who would turn away his wrath, taking all his sins. Yeah. But that's in a footnote. It's in a footnote. Okay. Otherwise, well, I'm, gl I'm glad the NA. Yours has what? Expiation. Ah, you have the revised standard version. That's bad. It has some Some. Okay, I'll tell you the story. Doug, do you want to tell this story, or should I tell it? Okay. <laughs> the Revised Standard Version done by theological liberals who want to insist there was no propitiation in the Bible, only expiation. 
Those are two distinct words for the atoning ritual takes place. And they both are true. We, we feel they are two aspects of atonement. Liberals do not want propitiation. Expiation, okay. What does expiation mean? Rubbing out. Okay? So a rubbing out of the sin is fine. The propitiation brings in the attribute of God. That's right. You're exactly right, Joe. Liberals don't believe that God is angry with us. And so the RSV started the thing that I talked about. Propitiation is not used. Expiation. And um, I can give you some detailed theological journal articles that refute that. I mean, it's a fascinating study. But it all comes down to something that's very practical. If you don't believe in the wrath of God, you don't need propitiation. All right. Jesus was set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to show forth his righteousness because of the passing over of the sins done aforetime. Um, there's so much in the Bible on this, so I'll have to conclude here tonight. Look at Psalm 32, verse 1. David understood the atoning ritual of the Old Testament. One of the most blessed psalms about forgiveness. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. What's the poetic parallel? Whose sin is covered. A kapara, the covering, the mercy seat. Whose sin is now no longer held against you because it's covered. Blessed is the man unto whom Jehovah imputes not iniquity. Jesus came to fulfill all that David and Moses and the Old Testament look forward to. He came so that his blood would be the propitiation for our sins. Before you go, I need to answer Joe's question about symbolic interpretations of tabernacle details. These interpretations tend to run amok, and they have done so throughout the history of the church. Let me give you a few that you may enjoy. <clears throat> Joe's is not offensive to me, but I think it's wrong. Let me give you some that sound so silly as to be offensive. The holy place is the church militant. The holiest place is the church triumphant. I'm not sure why. Okay, you have the menorah, the candle stand, the three lights on the left side, your left, my right, whatever. The left side are believers before the advent of Christ. On the right side are believers in this age, after Christ has come. The table of showbread really stands for Scripture because it's food for our spiritual life. The twelve loaves are really the twelve apostles. The four rings on the ark are really the four gospel writers who carried Christ into the world. Do I have to keep going? There's a long tradition of that. What do we want to say to that? Now, I, I, want, I want to know what do we say to it when the application is theologically sound. The gospels do carry Christ into the world. There is a difference between believers before and after the light of the world coming and so forth. Okay. You know what's wrong with those interpretations? They're disrespectful to the Word of God. Because, as I said in a recent review of somebody who loves to do this kind of thing, creativity in an author is a virtue, in an interpreter it's a crime. We are not free to make over the Word of God into whatever we want it to be. It must be interpreted by sound principles of hermeneutics. So that when we get done, we can say, this is what God is saying by this. And though I have no problem, you know, with Joe's motivation and so forth, and with the theology, but where do we get in the text that the cherubim are this and that? We don't. And we dare not add to the Word of God. Isn't that what Deuteronomy teaches us? Chapter 4, verse 2. Not only do we not subtract from the Word of God, we don't add to the Word of God. And the reason I'm stressing this before we end tonight is because in our circles of theological commitment, we have some people that have lost that Reserved. They have lost that control in hermeneutics, and it scares me to death. A lot of theological good is going to be lost, one, by the bad PR created through their silly interpretations. But that's not the worst of the problem. The worst of the problem is that this is an, an incorrect handling of the Word of God. Where are those folks live? In Texas. <laughs> <laughs> I want you to see the reserve of the... I want you to see the reserve of the author himself. This man knew it inside and out. If anybody's going to do a detailed interpretation, you'd look to the author of Hebrews. But what does he say? 
Verse 5, after going into all these details, of which things we cannot now speak in detail. He says, I don't want you to miss the main point. I don't want you to speculate about all the allegories that are possible of all the little details. He refuses to do it. He says, I'm not going to do it. I want you to see the point here. And the point is, if you see the layout of the temple, and if you see the constant ritual that they went through, you, you would have known it was looking for a day of reformation. And so stick to the main thrust. Don't try to make more of this than there to be made. John Calvin, I guess he's a good one to end with tonight. Calvin said, speculating beyond reasonable bounds, as some do, is not only <clears throat> futile, but also dangerous. And so anybody who is tempted to make more of the Word of God than you can by good contextual interpretation prove, and say at the end, thus saith the Lord, is really toying with a dangerous thing. So, we have this balancing act, don't we? Let's not miss the symbolism that God intends. The author of Hebrews wants us to have that. I mean, he pays attention to it. But let's not make more of it than God would have us make of it. Okay, any questions on tonight's lesson? I'm sorry we didn't get it as far as I had read, but that's not unusual. Okay. Right on the mercy seat itself, on this gold slab. Do they ever clean it off? Nope. If you were to actually have seen the mercy seat in the Old Testament, you've seen this beautiful gold slab with um, blood stains on it. Reflect on that. Just think about that. The beauty of gold with blood stains on it. Price of our salvation. Vicki? The colored thread. It, um, what do you call that, honey? I don't know. Weaving. Weaving. So, so that it ends up with a picture. You yes, have a background. Tapestry. tapestry? Okay. And so the the tapestry had a picture of cherubim on it when it was when they finished their work, and it was very beautifully done. Another reason why, as Christians, we believe in art because I mean God paid a lot of attention to the artistry of this tabernacle. Because of the regulative principle of worship. What is the regulative principle? We can worship only as God has commanded us. God commanded them to worship in that way. I'll help explain a little bit. Always a good idea to study your confession of faith. Chapter 7 of the Confession. God's covenant with man. <laughs> Sections 5 and 6. This covenant was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. Under the law it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the paschal lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all for signifying Christ to come, which were for that time sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah, by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation, and is called the Old Testament or Old Covenant. Under the Gospel, when Christ, the substance, has come, that's why we don't worship in Old Testament patterns. The substance has come. Uh, under the Gospel, when Christ's substance was exhibited, pardon me, the ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the Word, administration of the sacraments, and baptism in the Lord's Supper, which, though fewer in number, and administered with more simplicity and less outward glory, yet in them it is held forth in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles, and is called the New Covenant. You know why the Jews had so many pictures to follow? For the same reason you give pictures to your child. We now live in the era of the Word. It's the preached Word. 
We still have minimally pictures. We have the Lord's Supper and Baptism, but that's all. Because in this age, the emphasis is upon the Word of God. The Old Covenant had the Word of God, but they had a lot of pictures to teach them theology too. Just, I mean, just think, what if I came to church dressed like the high priest? I mean, what would I look like? I mean, it was, it was quite a sight, you know, in terms of the, the, the 12 stones and the breastplate and, you know, all the ornate detail. Why? Because God was teaching them something in pictures. But now he declares it fully and efficaciously in his word. And so I understand where you're coming from, and many with artistic inclinations want to know, well, why can't we imitate that kind of worship in the Old Covenant? It's because of the change of dispensation from a pictorial approach to the declared word. Why the declared word? Because the word of God has come, Jesus himself. And uh, there's, there's a lot of theological significance to the question you've brought up, and I've only begun to scratch the surface of it. So we shouldn't um, have any artwork that has any special... No, absolutely I'm not. An ordinary... Anything you have... I mean, you could have things in your house, and so you could have things in the church. Well, or, now... Or would you think that it would be... In the first place, you can't have things in the church for the reasons we've been talking about. But now you bring it up, can you have things in the house? If, if you have artistic representations in your house by which you feel you draw closer to God and lead a holier life, then they violate the second commandment. That's not what I mean. I just mean regular art. Oh, no. Well, yeah, art in the world is fine. Art through which we draw near to God is not. And so worship... regular paintings... Well, look at how you're using the word regular. What is it a regular a painting if it's in a church building? Like a seascape. Yeah. Yeah, and that's fine until you get some visiting preacher come in and he uses it as an allegory, you know. <laughs> Here we have the sea, you know, and how <laughs> so forth. And then every time you go into church you think of that sermon, right? And then it has religious significance. I'm just saying, so it's better to have no art in church. Because any any building is a form of art. I mean, you know, it just depends on pulpits are uh, a form of art, right? Right. Should the pulp should the pulpit have any kind of uh, what is it? Routing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What, what, what about the artistic expressions in the um, cathedrals in the world? In the what? Cathedrals. Yes, you know what happened at the time of the Reformation? They were destroyed and burned. Because the Reformers said this is a violation of the regulative principle of worship. And Schaefer, you know, praise him for, for this effort. He's exactly right here. Schaefer has to deal with art historians who say the Reformers hated art. They did not hate art. I mean, how can you say that and remember, you know, Rembrandt and so forth? They didn't hate art, but they despised idolatry. And so what they destroyed was idolatry. They didn't destroy it because of artistic merit. And as Schaefer says in his inimical ways, that we might have wanted them to put them in storage for a hundred years, right? <laughs> and then bring them out. But they couldn't. And of course they couldn't at the time because it was a life and death struggle for the religious history of Western, his, uh, Western Europe. It was not something that they could take lightly. But it wasn't art that the reformers didn't like. It was idolatry. So and it was idolatry. You wouldn't be too keen on me applicating a cross on the communion cloth, then, I think. Nah. No. Crown? Nah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's troublesome to teach this today because we have people, you'll go into Reformed churches. I won't mention any around here, but just recently my wife and I worshipped in a, another denomination of like faith and practice. And right, I mean, it's a beautiful building, huge building, huge stained glass window. And what is it in the stained glass? Cross. Now, maybe I should give them more credit. Maybe I should assume the 700 members of that church, not one of them has any psychological tendency to associate that room with worship in the presence of God. You know, But I'll tell you, most people I know tend to associate their worship building with drawing close to God. And you've got to be careful of that. That's why I think it's unwise to have a cross or a stained glass window of Jesus in your um, place of worship. But I wouldn't say it is ipso facto sinful. I'd just say it's really not good to tempt people that way. What, we, we still have... I just want to make a comment on that. Is that 
you know, as far as maturing and growing and into the new covenant, people say, for example, a picture's worth a thousand words, and that's not true. A picture's not worth a thousand thousand words. That's always been playing pictionary, right? <laughs> because it doesn't work that way. But those things that are in the inner worship place, they are distracting. Mm-hmm. I don't know what's been your experience and other mm-hmm. people, but I know that when you go into these sanctuaries and those things are there, they are distracting. They do draw your attention away from the words being spoken. Yeah. It's really a shame we can't divorce the aesthetics from the worship problem because in the cathedrals of Europe and so forth, there is some beautiful artistry and so forth. You know, if we could take these stained glass windows that have the stations of the cross and that sort of thing, no problem putting in that in a museum and, and all that. I'm not against religious artistry. I'm against it in worship, though. And when we abandon the pietistic approach to our worship and then apply it in our life, our lives are to be the expression of God, even in our artwork and our music and our that's judgment. Right. And that's, where that, that's the proper place for them there. Sure. Where we can express our art there in our homes. Yeah, I, I need to let you go, those of you who have other plans tonight. I'd love to keep talking about this. I'm really glad to see you so thirsty you know, to discuss this. Come out to open forum and we'll pick up where we left off tonight. But I do think we should close with a word of prayer. And Joe, would you do that for us? Father, we thank you for the time we've had together in study. We confess that our understanding is limited. And we thank you we have a God who is not limited. He's not limited by anything on earth or in heaven. the eternal God. The Alpha and Omega is our Savior and Lord. We just praise you for Him. And the privilege we have in being able to enter into communion with Him by His blood, we just praise you tonight. And as we go our separate ways, Father, we pray that we will continue to abide in that word. We pray that the Christ of for our name's sake. We pray to return again to fellowship in this way. Amen. Amen. Amen.